Hello, and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, my name is Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. John Barkham and Dr. Alok Sachdeva. For first-time listeners, we are a sleep medicine-focused podcast that uses expert interviews to dive into the complex aspects of various sleep medicine topics. We're a free form and generally unscripted, and therefore I would like to take this time to say that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of the University of Michigan or the Veterans Administration. In addition, we do not provide medical advice. If you are in need of immediate medical assistance, please contact your personal physician or call 911. I would again like to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast not only entertains, but teaches you something new. On today's podcast, we'll be joined by Dr. Dana Bush. He is a general and trauma surgeon, He has been an aviation medical examiner since the year 2000, a pilot since 1985, and is also a commercial pilot. He performs over 3,000 FAA exams per year, and he is a human interventional motivational study aviation medical examiner, which means he handles drug and alcohol cases as well as cases involving the use of antidepressants. In general, he handles many complicated FAA medical cases. He has requested that pilots can reach him at drbush at myfaamedical.com or on his cell phone at 248-318-6038. Hello and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt. Joining me is Dr. John Barkham and today we are joined by Dr. Dana Bush. Dr. Bush, nice to meet you and thanks for being here. Hi, nice to be here. Welcome. All right. So we're going to get started. Um, We'd like to always, as uh, our listeners know, we like to start off with some get to know you questions. So first one, Dr. Bush, what is the best piece of advice you've gotten in your career or life? Well, I think mostly just from people that just be, be honest and true to yourself and uh, you know, in um, kind of an extension, you know, in a, in a clinical environment to be honest and true to your patients. Right. And that's uh, a lot of what I do. I, I try not to sugarcoat things and, you know, I, I try to be as straightforward with them as possible. And, and I think that's, that's really important, you know, whether you're dealing with your patients or your kids or your spouse to be as uh, straightforward and, and, you know, honest as you can. I, I'm a big fan of the straightforward yeah. approach. <laughs> some some patients don't like it too much, but I think Simplicity it's, it's just better is. to be, this is what it is, and you know, you like it or you don't like it or go see another physician. But, keep, but this is my opinion and this is what I'm willing to do. So Keep it simple. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is, what's what's the best vacation or you've been on or best, your favorite book you've read, either one of the two or answer them both or kind of. Oh, best! I would say my the, the best. <laughs> our best vacation so far has been the one we just not too long ago took right over the holidays. I took the took the whole family down to Hilton Head over Christmas, and we hadn't been on a vacation in you know two years with, with COVID and everything. And my kids are all you know they're in college and one's in dental school, so trying to get everybody together anymore to do anything is really really difficult. Mm-hmm. So just to get the whole family together and go someplace, my kids were like, hey, instead of getting Christmas presents, can we just go somewhere? Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we did. And it was worth every minute of it. We, how is Hilton? We were, so my family was thinking about doing Hilton Head for over, over the winter holidays as well. Didn't end up working out, <laughs> just hanging out in Michigan. But how is, how is Hilton Head? It's great. I mean, you know, for, for them going down there the week after Christmas, they were cold. Everybody down there had a big heavy winter coats on, but it was, it was 50 degrees and like, Mm -hmm. it it was perfect for me. And, you know, it, is it as warm as Florida? No, but it's also not nearly as crowded. And, and more importantly, I was, you know, we drove there. So, um, I wanted to be able to have some place we could drive because being involved in aviation too, I know what holiday travels like and I didn't want to get it messed up and it turns out that was the fortuitous thing because the holiday travel turned into be a total meltdown yeah so how far of a drive is that it it's 23 hours so usually i break it up into my office is down in plymouth so usually we'll i i work there on every friday so we'll leave my my family will come down and meet me and we'll just leave there and 
And usually I drive, you know, into the evening and I usually pick some place to stay overnight halfway in between and then, you know, just drive the rest of the way the next day. And it's, it's not bad. You're a big, you're a big travel driver too. I have your to, family, right? So I have to, yeah, I've got family on East coast and West coast now, my wife's family. So yeah. we end up driving to the East coast, but not, not to West coast. We just fly. Yeah. Longest we did was when I moved from fellowship to, to being an attending. So that was from Denver to Ann Arbor. And that was a good, I think it was. That's two days. Yeah. It was, it was a stop in Omaha overnight, stop in Chicago overnight. Yeah. And then. Yeah. That Denver is where I'm originally from. Oh, it is? So okay. I did oh, wow. that. Same thing as you. I did that in medical, you know, medical school and stuff coming out this way. And yeah, it's a, it's a two day drive. Oh yeah. So I, I did my fellowship at National Jewish. Oh, great. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Cause I thought I was going to do pulmonary. So, <laughs> so that's why I went there. Um, and then last question uh, before we jump into the case is what's your, what's your thing of the month? What are you kind of into, you know, what's your favorite thing, you know, the hobby again, book, what, like, well, you know, um, flying is one of my big hobbies. That's like my big one. Uh, I've been trying to do my, I've been a pilot since 1985 and I've been trying to get my CFI, my flight instructor rating done. Um, I started it right before COVID and then COVID hit and it kind of put an end to it. So I'm kind of determined now that this spring I'm going to finish it up. So that's my big, that's, your big that's my big project. <laughs> Nice. I don't know anything about flying yeah. except for like Microsoft Flight Simulator. <laughs> That's about it. I don't have nothing to add. To You'd be surprised how good it is. Is anymore. it? Oh, it's, okay. Yeah. It's it's incredibly good. In fact, some of the commercial, not the ones the airlines use, but some of the commercial flight simulators that we use at some of the flight schools are that's the software they use. They have better they have better, fancier, you know, interface devices, but Basically, the software is the same Microsoft Flight Simulator you can buy off the shelf. Oh, interesting. It's it's that good. Wow, didn't know. John, what's your what's your thing? Um, I've been reading a book, P.T. Barnum's autobiography. Don't know how I got onto this, but someone suggested it, and I picked it up, and it's been pretty good. It's interesting, even from a historical reference. It's interesting, but uh, almost done with that. What about you? Um, I mean, there's always Always a lot. Gotta go. Gotta go. NHL playoffs right now. It's it's that time of you the went year. From one sport to the next. I moved from one sport to the next. It's football. Now it's now it's hockey. Mm-hmm. But NHL playoffs is. I think, in my opinion, the Stanley Cup is the hardest, like thing to win. I mean, it's hardest thing to watch for me. I don't like hockey. Yeah. How are you? You're not. You're not really from the Midwest. I'm just. I'm from Minnesota originally, so I hockey's just in insulted our, a in bunch of blood. fans. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, it's it's. And the Minnesota Wild are in, so it's, um, you know, it's fun to watch. Um, games are always super late, though, so it messes with my my circadian rhythm. You're a bad I'm, sleep doctor. I'm a horrible sleep <laughs> yeah. doctor. Yeah. I'm getting to bed till like, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning now. So, But, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of my thing. Um, and then after this, it's time to get ready for football season again. And the, cycle, the cycle. The cycle. Abuse. The cycle. <laughs> my wife's never happy with me. It's draft so, day. Yeah, draft day's coming up, so. Lot, lot to do. Um, so, Doctor Bush, before we get started on the case, just kind of want to talk to you. What is it that you, you know, what's special about what you do with the FAA, or kind of what, um, you know, John definitely, you know, really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about um, FAA regulations and, and stuff. So, what, what, what is it that you exactly? Right. So, I'm a, I'm an aviation medical examiner. So, every pilot from airline pilots all the way down to private pilots, every pilot has to have, or needs to have a uh, FAA medical certificate. So what, what I and other AMEs do is we evaluate pilots to determine if they meet the FAA's very specific medical standards. And if they do, then I am able to issue them a certificate. Um, there's probably three or 4,000 AMEs across the country. Um, I'm a pretty busy one. I do about 3,000 so uh, pilot exams a year. But more specifically, I also handle a lot of complicated cases, right? And, you know, where 
sleep apnea, which we're going to talk about. That's, that's one of those kind of cases that um, is a bit more complicated, right? So we can still get pilots medicals with a history or a diagnosis of sleep apnea, but there's some very specific uh, kind of protocols and procedures we have to go through to do that. So I spend a lot of my time working with pilots with sleep apnea and other medical issues who maybe don't necessarily qualify initially for a medical, but the FAA has this process called special issuance by which essentially you can prove to the FAA that, that even though you have a medical condition that you still are, you know, would be a safe pilot. And so we can still get you a medical. And that's a lot of what I do. Is this now, do you do the like, um, truck driving DOT stuff as well, or is that separate? Cause I, I do, I have, I happen to have a D that's a separate authorization that you have to get. Mm -hmm. I do have a DOT authorization. I don't do uh, nearly as many of those. Mm -hmm. Um, FAA is more particular. The FAA, for example, all AMEs are physicians, right? So to be an AME, you have to be an MD or a DO. I have to be a DO, but you have to be a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, they will not approve or authorize PAs, NPs, et cetera, right? A DOT, on the other hand, you can be a MD, DO, PA, NP. I think they even accept chiropractic, mm -hmm. right, for DOT. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I because there's a checkbox on the DOT form and it has DC on it. So there, I don't do as many. There's way more DOT providers out there than there are AMEs. So mm -hmm. I don't do mo most of the ones I do that are DOT or for pilots who also request a DOT also. So mm -hmm. I just, it's convenient to them. Yeah. I'd have to say that's how we became affiliated. We had a mutual patient and uh, we started talking because I hadn't had a pilot and probably well, I've had several pilots, but I wasn't familiar with the recs for FA and how they had changed over the years. So mm -hmm. that kind of, kind of brought us into, to di into discussion. Yeah. I only have one or two, but they're extremely compliant. Yeah. So, right. So, so. Didn't, didn't have much to talk about for the, them. The having a job tied to your CPAP compliance seems to be a huge motivator. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would agree. It's, you know, um, one of the other things I've found is, you know, there's, I don't know what, for you guys as clinicians who deal with it every day, you know, a lot of times when I get a pilot in who, you know, the possibility that they have sleep apnea has come up or, you know, their primary care has asked them to go take a sleep test or whatever. And a lot of them have this, this fear of it, you know, they're like, Oh my God, I've heard all these bad things about CPAP and I, I'll do everything I can to avoid that. And and all this. And so I get some, I sense some resistance, but then once I get them through and they're done and they got their CPAP, some of my pilots are some of the most, you know, ardent true believers now. Right. And they don't want to give it up. Mm. Right. And they, some, a lot of them have two machines, mm. you know, they have one they travel with and they have the one that stays at home and they swear by it. And they're like, oh my God, you know, now I have this and like life is so much better. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's surprising to me to see as a, as a, you know, a sleep apnea person myself. Right. So, I mean, I, I use CPAP. So to see that, how people can go from being like really apprehensive and all these horror stories they think they've heard to, oh my God, I can't live without this thing. It's like, you know. It can, it can be a literally, hard, literally saving my life. It, it can be a hard sell uh, many times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And easier. So in the last five years, I think to kind of get alternatives and other talk about, you know, the masks have improved, the machines have improved. So I think, I mean, for me, so like I've been using CPAP for over 15 years. Right. So my old machine was, you know, I, the only mask that was available was the, was the big full face or the big nasal one. And they were uncomfortable and the machines were noisy. You know, you compare that to this, like this new one that I just got now, you know, it's the nasal prongs that I use are super comfortable. The machine, I can't even hear it. Right. You, you know, you've got these auto set machines now that 
you know, auto adjust the pressure. It's, I think that's a big, as a patient too, that's a big thing that technology has just come so much further that it's, it's made it so much easier. You know, I've seen some of these guys bring in their little the travel, travel machines yeah. and the things like, it's like, you know, the, the size of an old school Walkman. I'm dating myself, but <laughs> right? it's like that size. We know you talking about, yeah, right? So it's, you know, and they're portable and the, you know, I've got guys that take them, you know, we're here in Michigan. So I've got guys that, that take these little portable ones when they go up North camping, mm -hmm. right. Cause yep. the thing's battery powered and they, they're like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I don't, cause I don't want to be without it. Right. Right. So, you know, I think it might be good to talk about. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Let's, maybe let's jump into like his one question before. Yeah, is, a true, is, is the, is the red or the blue green colorblind thing true or for pilots? You know, I always hear that like, if you're colorblind, you can't be a pilot. It was like a well, big thing. And like, like little miss sunshine. <laughs> remember, if you remember that movie the guy, really, Paul Dano really wanted to be a pilot. And then like, she did the little thing and he couldn't see the numbers in that blue green color thing. I forgot about thing. that movie, but so, so, it's good so movie. um, yeah, I mean, color blindness can be an issue, but there's, there's workarounds, okay. right? There's processes, you know, in 20 some years of doing this, I've not yet met a true, uh, you know, complete, uh, uh, colorblind, right. Uh, pilot, most, uh, color blindness is actually, you know, uh, a color deficiency, right. It's not that you can't see the color at all. It's just, it's just not to the, to the extent that maybe gotcha. you should be. So that, you know, there's, there's ways in the screening tests. A lot of times the screen test for colorblind, the Ishihara test and these other, you know, the little dot patterns you look at, they're very, very sensitive and they're designed to pick up like really subtle problems, but we can get most people through there there's processes with that so i wouldn't i definitely wouldn't would tell people if you've even if you know you have a color issue don't let that scare you off it's, it's something you want to do i was totally in a side mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Side note. well no we can i have another question how do you usually get your patients are they already diagnosed or do you end up having to do the workup um for sleep apnea i it's probably about an even amount mm -hmm. right so um as an ame so I'm not a, I, my background is a surgeon, right? So I'm not the treating clinician for any of these uh, pilots. Um, part of that is by choice because I want to be able to be their advocate and not, not have to get entangled in issues with taking care of them too. Um, and also because so many things are kind of out of my wheelhouse as a, as being a surgeon, but probably about half of the, sleep apnea cases are pilots that come in and, you know, either through my screening or other medical issues that they have they get kind of pushed down this pathway towards having a sleep apnea evaluation or a sleep evaluation. And is that a stop bang that you use to screen or what do you That's mean? yeah, that and the Epworth, mm -hmm. right? So those are the two uh, big things uh, that are used uh, for that. And then the other group of pilots that I get are ones that have already either already have sleep apnea and some kind of treatment, usually CPAP, but, or they're in the process of undergoing a, an evaluation or their primary doc told them, Hey, I need an evaluation. They're called me and they're all like in a panic and they want to know, okay, well, what do I have to do? So. But every doctor, every, every pilot has to go through a screening every year. Sure. You know, when you, when you come in, I'm on the FA application form, right? When I put the data into the FA computer, I have to categorize every pilot into one of like four or five categories, right? So either you already are on a, uh, a sleep apnea special issuance, or you've had the sleep study and you're on CPAP, but you don't have the special issuance yet. That's number two or number three. In my, in my judgment, you don't need an evaluation. Or number four, that would be you have risk factors and I'm going to like educate you and caution you about the risks involved with sleep apnea. Number five in those groups would be you definitely have risks and, and I'm going to require you to get an evaluation, but you can still fly, right? 
So when the FAA first started doing all this several, probably eight, 10 years ago, originally it was just based off BMI, right? That was the initial thing. If your BMI is over a certain amount, you're going to have to go get a sleep evaluation. You can imagine what kind of like <laughs> chaos that, that uh, caused. So then the FAA revised that guideline and they got to a point where now, where we are now, where I use that we're required to use, and the FAA protocol says we're to use AASM uh, screening criteria, which includes things like, you know, the, the all the history, the, you know, the stop bang, the Epworth, and to make an assessment mm -hmm. ourselves of where in the risk category this person is. So if if we think they're high enough, I can require a sleep evaluation, but I can still let them fly while this is all going on. Mm -hmm. The only ones that we have to ground are people who, in my opinion, right, when I see them, in my opinion, have enough risk factors that they pre present a, uh, you know, a safety risk right now, Right. And there's only one person in the years I've been doing this that I did. And the guy was like literally falling asleep in my office. Right. right? right. And he had other medical issues. Right. So it wasn't just his sleep apnea that was grounding him because he had diabetes and he had a bunch of other right. things. And I would have had to ground him for any of those too. But I have yet to, you know, take any pilot who, even when they're a high risk factor and say, Hey, I'm going to park you, you know, right now. Right. What we've been able to do is keep them flying. The FAA gives them 90 days to go get their assessment done. Mm -hmm. So when I screen somebody and if if I feel that they require an assessment, the first step is to go, um, you know, to get an assessment by a sleep specialist. Right. Mm -hmm. So I look at them and I use ASM criteria to determine you know, things again, like, uh, Epworth and, and stop bang. And then we look at things like, you know, um, you know, their, their micronathia or, um, you know, uh, arrhythmias and, you know, uh, it, all those other things. There's a, there's a little checklist a list. that we have yeah. of those things and it's right out of AS guidelines. Mm -hmm. So if you meet that, uh, criteria, then you have to go see an, somebody who's AASM certified. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that was another big change the FAA made because originally it was like, no, you need to go see a pulmonary guy. But mm -hmm. in, in realization that, you know, yeah, at least in my experience, most of my sleep specialists are pulmonary background, but you know, we've got neurologic and others and it, you know, but that was the standard that they, that they decided to go by, right. If they're ASM certified, then you can perform this evaluation. So then the sleep specialist does the consult and, you know, they may or may not feel that a formal sleep study is required, mm -hmm. right? If the sleep specialist feels that the sleep study is not required, then I send that result into the FA and the FA usually is like, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if the sleep specialist says no you should have a sleep evaluation then the fa requires that it has to be read by a asm certified um specialist and the fa currently will only accept type one and type three i think they're mm -hmm. type three right. so in lab and home sleep they want it in the home studies they're i again i don't fully understand all the types that's you that's guys' area but they want the higher quality um, home studies. And I know, like, I run into this a lot. A lot, of the, a lot of the pilots, they'll tell me, well, you know, the insurance company said I have to get this home one done before they'll approve my lab one. Right. And So, the, yeah, the home studies are, are diagnostic only if you have high suspicion and they're positive. If they're negative, yeah. they don't have the sensitivity to adequately rule out sleep apnea, but they're a lot cheaper for the insurance companies. So, you know, we don't usually have to, we don't have to deal with that in our, in our lab at the VA. So in a case like yours, when I've got someone who's a pilot high risk situation, I will do an in-lab because I don't have to deal with the insurance companies and we know exactly what we're dealing with. Right. 
um, because a lot of times uh, the discussion comes up more and more often about alternatives to CPAP and so forth, um, you know, versus just being on CPAP the rest of their life. Do you want to like kind of present your case? We can. I've got, I've, look. yeah, I can, yeah. I've got a couple pilot cases. Let's do an easy one first. Okay. Cause then we can get into the nuances of the more difficult yeah, case. Absolutely. And in this case, it's going to be a 65 year old male who is uh, obese. Uh, he's a real estate. Um, I'm sorry. He's a car salesman, owns his own car dealership. Very successful, but he has a plane and he flies. And he was recently admitted for AFib. He's still in AFib and he comes into your clinic. Uh, um, he denies any daytime sleepiness. Um, he will admit that there is some fatigue greater over the last decade, but not acute fatigue. And um, a little bit resistant to even the idea that he might have sleep apnea. So I guess one, so this guy comes in to us as sleep physicians, but one question is like, if someone comes on, like, so I know like you can, like Dr. Bush, you can refer to us. If someone comes into us without a referral from like an AME, how does that paperwork process work? Like, um, like we diagnose them and then they, they give you the paperwork saying, Hey, here, I have sleep apnea and now it's treated or like, how does that? Yeah. So usually what will happen is, you know, especially if it's one of my pilots I've been seeing is I'll get a phone call, right? Oh, Hey, my, you know, my primary doc sent me to go see this sleep guy and he says, I need a sleep study. So what did the heck does that mean for the FAA? So then I kind of go through the whole process with them and tell them, well, you know, basically we can go through the whole workup. You can get all that done, right? Get the sleep study done. And then we have to see what that shows, right? So that's the first thing is get the sleep study, right? And I would agree with you, you know, the, the FA also is not real keen on just home studies to exclude sleep apnea if the risk is high enough, right? It's, if it's positive, okay, that's all you need maybe, but you know, they really like lab studies, right? So, um, but when we get the lab study back, the FAA kind of breaks things down into three general groups, right? So assuming that the study is good quality, if the AHI is under 10, then the FAA won't generally require any treatment at all from their standpoint. Now, if the clinician, if the specialist still recommends that the pilot consider sleep, you know, apnea treatment, and that's what the pilot wants, chooses to do, then, you know, the, we would follow through with the appropriate protocol, but they're not going to insist that you, yeah. Oh, you know, you have to have this in order to get your medical if you're 10 and under, mm -hmm. right. If you're 10 to 15, then typically they want some form of treatment, but they'll be a little bit more accepting of, uh, like specifically dental appliances, right? I have a couple of pilots who are in that 10 to 15 range who um, effectively use oral appliance therapy, and that's acceptable. Generally speaking, if you're over 15, they're going to require sleep, uh, CPAP treatment. Um, and, you know, my understanding, again, I'm not as a sleep specialist, but an FAA guy is that the effectiveness of the other treatment methods kind of drops off, you know, at 15 and higher and that really only CPAP is sufficiently um, efficacious at that point. Yeah. I think we talked about before uh, you and I off, off the podcast about what they count as an AHI. If they're counting the arousal based criteria or the desaturation based criteria, they count, they count both. There's right. not, not like a Medicare AHI. Right. right, where it's three, where it's four percent, or apneas, they actually That's count three percent. Yeah, they yeah. Count. And so we'll look at you know the the study results. You know, typically they'll look at both the obstructive and the central component, mm -hmm. right? Um, I've had a couple of cases where the total number wasn't that high. You know, maybe we didn't hit the fifteen threshold, but it was predominantly central. Right, which is a more of a concern to the to the FAA, hmm. right? In terms of feeling that you know the um, the non CPAP modalities maybe aren't as 
as reliable for people with high amounts of central sleep apnea as opposed to purely obstructive. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all those are, you know, they're all considerations. Um, I think that, um, you know, definitely CPAP is the most preferred. Um, I, I try to, you know, get my patients to my pilots to, you know, consider it. Um, most of them do just fine with it, right? Most of them have not had any real issues. We have had, you know, we have had some that, that have had some, uh, you know, issues with tolerating it. But surprisingly, the people that, that have high, really high HIs, you know, forties and fifties and those kind of guys where it's really the only option they have. I have not had really people push back on that because I think they've seen so much improvement in their, in their health and quality of life that they, they adjust to it. Well, then I'll update you on the case. So the patient sees me, uh, we send him for a sleep study. His HI comes back as 32. Mm -hmm. uh, he subsequently titrated to CPAP of 12 centimeters. He comes back into my office and he says he actually feels better. Um, now, what does he have to do to reach FA compliance with the CPAP? Does he just have to do the four hours per night, like Medicare criteria, or does he need something more strict? Now, the, the FA, what the FA wants to see on the compliance data that we have to send in, the FA would like to see, wants to see six hours on average, more than 75% of the time. So like I tell pilots, you know, they don't expect perfection, but they expect consistent, right? So when I look at a report every year, when the pilot comes in on their special issuance, you know, I have to have a download from the previous 12 months. So the first thing I look at is I look at the reporting period to make sure it's 12 months. And then once I have that, okay, we're 12 months. Next thing I look at is the AHI, right? Are we under 10? As long as we're under 10, even if you're on treatment, if your AHI is seven, the FA will accept that, right? Mm -hmm. From a clinical standpoint, it might not be ideal, but the FA will accept it as uh, long as it's. I tell 10. patients perfection is sometimes yeah. the enemy of good, right? <laughs> sometimes you can't make that number perfect. Yeah. So as long as it's under 10, the FA will accept it. Um, that's the next thing I look at. And then, you know, I look at the compliance time. Mm -hmm. So I want to see six hours uh, on the nights used, typically like, you know, say with the REM stars or whatever, you get this printout, it says, you know, uh, average of nights used, mm -hmm. right? right? So I, that's the one I look at, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's what we look at. And too. I want to see that six hours or more, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also, uh, and then I want to see the total usage days, at least 75% of that. And, and that's, it's rare that I have pilots that we don't meet those criteria, but if we run into a problem and I'm like looking at it, okay, your hours time isn't good enough or your usage days isn't enough. As long as, as I can comfortably say, you're not having daytime sleepiness issues, I can still go ahead usually and certify you with that. The FA is going to send you a letter and say, Hey, this is our guidelines. We expect better performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. They might even, instead of letting me give you a year, they might even say, okay, we're only going to give you six months because we want it. And I've got one guy with that right now. Right. And so we just, his, his numbers are just barely acceptable. So the FA said, we'll give you six months. And in six months we want another download and we want to see improvement. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and those are all, you know, one, I've found that most pilots, I mean, a lot of my guys, this is their career. Okay. But even those that aren't, once you tell them what you're looking for and they can access the data themselves, which these new machines, you mm -hmm. can do that there. I've found that in that subset of people I take care of that they're um, compliance does get Increase. better. Yeah. 
right? Because they're motivated and they can keep track of it themselves. You're also working with a high functioning group of people, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I tell you, I won't kid you, you know, it means a lot. It, you know, it's, it's a big deal when these guys uh, and ladies, right? right these pilots are, you know, sitting here realizing that, you know, my, my livelihood depends on, on doing this successfully. Right. 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 But, you know, up front, that's what gets them motivated because I have to do this because I need it for my job. But then what happens down the road that I see is they're like, oh, you know what? I don't have headaches in the morning when I wake up. Right. Right. Oh, by the way, I was able to stop one of my blood pressure medications because my doc says my blood pressure is better. Right. Yeah. You know, these kind of. You got the selling points there. Yeah. When they actually feel the benefit. Is there anything, and I think this is the question that might probably sleep practitioners want to know. uh, Is there anything that you need as an AME from us? Right. So I think that's like, oh, I'm a pilot. And then it's become, oh my God, do I have to do something special? Is there something different I have to do? Is there more paperwork that I as a practitioner have to do for this patient? So like I, for, for instance, I have two pilots and I, Every year they want me to write a letter for them saying, hey, you know, I saw this page. But if you're doing that, I mean, is that something that I really need to do or? Well, it, it just, the FAA just made it a little easier. Okay. Right? So that used to be how you had to do it, right? I had to get the download. The pilot has to sign a, an affidavit that basically says, yes, I promise you I'm using my CPAP. Um, and then we needed the clinical report from the specialist. So typically that was a progress notes or a narrative. And a lot of times they would have what you wanted or they didn't. So the FA came up with a form. It's, there's one for the initial when we get, when you first go on CPAP and we first get you your special issuance, there's one for that. But then for follow-up ones, it's just a one page. It's got, you know, a series of boxes on it. It, oh, look at my, I got to remind myself what all it wants. So. What does it want, right? It wants, you know, when was your primary diagnosis on the initial sleep study? What was the initial AHI? Are you taking any sedating medications, right? Because that's a factor they want to know of. What's the treatment, right? CPAP, BiPAP, oral appliance. And then if it's CPAP, they want that data from the download. They want to know number of days used, you know, um, What's, and again, like on the form here, it says 75% or more is acceptable. If less than 75, comment is required. So it, it's an opportunity for the clinician to just put in there what factors. And, you know, I had one guy recently, he was like in a panic. So he goes to his sleep specialist. He's got his SD card out of his machine and lo and behold, like a three month chunk of his data is not there. And he's like, oh my right. God, I'm not going to. Okay, that's fine. Right. Just have your specialist write in the note that there was a technical issue with the machine. And that in your professional opinion, that the patient is compliant, especially make mention of, you know, are they or are they not having any clinical evidence of daytime sleepiness? Right. Do you have clinical evidence that they're still as compliant as you think they are? Mm-hmm. Right. And some of these other factors, you know, play into it. Again, your blood pressure is better, right? You don't, your Epworth is good. You aren't reporting any problems. So I, uh, you know, as a clinician, do you have any reason to doubt that the treatment is being effective? Right. And that's bottom line is that's what the FA is the most concerned about, right? They, um, Yes, they like these numbers and numbers are easy, but fundamentally is the therapy effective in reducing not only daytime sleepiness, but in reducing the other comorbidities that result from sleep apnea? Now, I did take a look at these guidelines um, beforehand. It looks like, so you said, or maybe I missed this when you said this, but 16 events per hour or higher for sleep apnea, the severity, moderate or severe, it looks like they push strongly for CPAP. 
as far as you, yes. for what treatment options. Okay. Yeah. Especially if it's over 15. Yeah. So that, that gets us to kind of like the gray area with the moderate patients, mm-hmm. because, you know, you, we recommend CPAP with most of our patients. Um, but, you know, we do have our failures and then, you know, in the mild to moderate ranges where we see alternatives start to be more effective. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings me to a couple cases we had recently where I had a younger patient who's a pilot who had mild sleep apnea. Uh, the, uh, the index was seven, but on his, in, in, on, in, so because on his side, he didn't have any events, but on his back, he had like 20 events per hour. So, you know, like, you know, you can kind of fudge these studies. If you sleep on your side, you could maybe get a negative study, whereas you sleep on your back, you could have a positive study. And this is one individual. So, um, and maybe we didn't, you know, we, I recommended, you know, he could try the CPAP, but he didn't want to, we could do positional therapy. We could do a dental device. Perhaps we could do excite OSA. There's even surgical options, you know, um, what, it, but those other options, those alternatives are sometimes difficult to track as far as compliance goes. How right. do you, how do you approach that with these other therapies, not CPAP with compliance? Right. So that's one of the reasons the FAA has this one page form that the pilot signs that basically says, I promise I'm doing my therapy like I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. That's designed for dental and alternative therapies beyond CPAP. Right? Okay. There are, I am aware that there are some of the dental appliances that do have some type of monitoring function. The FAA doesn't require those. You know, for CPAP, it requires that your CPAP has right. to be monitoring. But for these others, it doesn't, right? What they, again, it, for that, even more so than CPAP, when you're using an alternative treatment method to CPAP, it, it really is a lot dependent upon the clinician's report, right? That progress report. In right. your opinion, whether you're you know, a pulmonary sleep specialist, a neurologic sleep specialist, or even a dental sleep specialist. In your, you know, professional opinion, is this treatment effective for your patient? And if you feel that it's effective for the patient, that it's achieving its goals and improving the quality and duration of sleep, state that in your report, the FA will be fine with it. So they've left. Go ahead. No, I guess... um, do the dental, I mean, we, we do them for dental uh, devices. So I'm assuming it was, but just does the FAA require a post, a post dental appliance titration? So this is, you know, this was AHI before you got your oral, appli- oral appliance. You know, it's custom made. You've made the adjustments. It's maximally protruded. We're going to bring you back into the lab and it is because, you know, they may interrupt. They might have, could do they require for anything like excite OSA or even yeah. inspire to prove that, hey, you made this intervention. Is it working? Yes, I've seen that, especially when you get higher numbers up towards that their 15 threshold. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the if you're below 10, I've not yeah. seen them insist because actually, if you're below 10 and you choose no therapy, they, they're not going to really harp on it. Right. Right. Um, in between and at 10 to 15, and I just did one not too long ago where the guy got a really nice custom, uh, you know, dental appliance. And they said, yeah, okay, now we want at least one post device, uh, titration study to, to confirm effectiveness. And then once they've shown through that follow-up study that yes, it's effective in treatment, then they'll accept him saying, okay, yeah, I'm using it mm-hmm. along with the clinician's notes. But yeah, I, I have seen it. And that. are they looking for less than 10 on the titration, a residual yeah, AHA? It, of- I don't even know on the follow-up. Yes, less is better, right? But I think what specifically they're looking for is improvement, Okay, right? They want to see, number one, that the device is staying in all night, right? That you're not taking it out 90 minutes into your sleep, mm-hmm. right? And that providing you're keeping it in all night, that you're seeing some measurable degree of improvement in in the sleep apnea and it, you know, it's. Because we get a lot of, I feel like with these alternatives, especially Inspire, um, and we're not doing Inspire on 15 to 20, you know, usually putting in patients who are 
you know, 30, 40, 50 uh, who are just not tolerant of PAP. And we don't think that oral appliance would be that effective. But, you know, 50% effectiveness on Inspire is still, you know, that's what's considered to be successful. So if you have an AHI of like 50 and a successful Inspire only gets you down to an AHI of 25, what does the FAA think of that? Because a lot of these patients, though, even yeah. though that, you know, they've dropped, they're still, they still have moderate to severe sleep apnea, even with Inspire, mm-hmm. but they feel better. Mm-hmm. Is that really what, what the crux, you know, it's like, you know, the titration shows, you know, residual AHI of 25 with Inspire, but the patient feels much better. Ultimately, what, what we've seen sometimes in cases like that, and I did have one guy, he's, he's very compliant with treatment. Um, he has a moderate degree of central. And so he, we just can't get his numbers below 10, right? His sleep specialist is tried, but objectively he feels better. So ultimately the FAA said, okay, well, prove it to us with an MWT. All right. So that's kind of, they used to do a lot of those, but now of course with compliance monitoring everything, they don't, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of one of those things they hold in their back pocket that, you know, all right. You know, if you want to show us that, that this is good enough, do an MWT. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if you can pass an MWT with a, you know, index of, you know, 18, then all right, we'll take that into consideration. I was going to ask you if they still, if they do the MWT at all, but this seems like the perfect time to do it. How many of those do you see happening a year ballpark once a year? Maybe one. So it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, they used to be before, again, before um, the current protocol and before the, um, you know, all of the, the consistent machines that all record now, Mm -hmm. they used to see a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. When the, when the logging, uh, you know, data tracking machines first came out, if you had data from your machine, then they would accept that. If you didn't, then they'd want an MWT. But now that they just mandate, you know, data recording machines. And so, so we don't do many of those. Usually they're in that, that circumstance of trying to. So we are going to catch these people who, you know, are still high AHI, but feel better. Subjectively yeah. feel better. If yeah. yeah. If they're on an alternative. Because I guess, you know, from a, clin- from a clinician standpoint, you know, <laughs> we don't want to be like, oh yeah, this patient is fine. And he's flying a commercial, you know, it's right. like, we don't want that right. liability, but I guess that's a good way to. So I understand this as if they have more than 10 events per hour and we treat them with an alternative, you know, we're looking for subjective improvement, objective improvement on a follow-up study. and if we have any doubts about that subjective improvement or improvement objectively, we need a mean wakefulness test to confirm that. Yes. Yeah. And the FAA would come back and just say, Hey, you know, yeah, he needs if, the if, the, if, the, if the maintenance of wakefulness test is good, reasonable, mm-hmm. then you know, if the patient passes that, then the FAA would look favorably at that and say, okay, this is, is evidence, you know, good, good clinical evidence that yes, the treatment is achieving its, its goals. Right. Okay. It's good. I mean, I, I was looking over the recs and I had to say they seemed pretty reasonable. I, you know, it, I ran into another doctor somewhere that wasn't as familiar with the recs. You know, they're like, everybody has to be treated with CPAP. And that's kind of why I circled back to you to talk about this, to kind of understand this better uh, because it seemed like there was some, you know, flexibility there that once, was not there before. Do you think there's any like loopholes in these wrecks that need to be corrected from, you know, safety standpoint as a passenger, you know, concerns? Um, I think they're pretty good. Um, you know, it's the controversy that came about when the, when the FA initially tried and stuck up a BMI as the primary criteria, only criteria that, I kind of wish they wouldn't have done that because that created this huge, you know, backlash against the BMI. Right. Mm -hmm. But as those of us who deal with this know, that's a huge, is a huge factor. Right. And I still, you know, when I'm getting pilots that are having BMIs in the, you know, 40 plus range, I have some concerns with that. 
most often those pilots also have, you know, hypertension or frequently even type two diabetes. And so I'll, I'll push the sleep study as part of that whole thing too. Right. Because it's not just the weight and the, because Mm -hmm. your diabetes and your, and your hypertension increase your statistical risk of having sleep apnea. Right. So then, okay, now I'm going to require an evaluation. And again, I think the big improvement the FAA made in the policy was not to just flat say everybody's got to have a sleep study if you are over whatever BMI, right? They What they said is, okay, you have to have an assessment by a board-certified sleep-trained professional, right, who does this every day. If that professional in their evaluation and assessment of you feels like that sleep apnea is not a problem for you, okay, right? But, you know, nine times out of 10, what does the sleep specialist say, right? Given these kind of patients. So the thing is, if you send a man over with a high BMI, they're pretty much already high risk, right? Because they're already a male. The BMI is already high. Odds are, if you have a high BMI, you do snore. Mm -hmm. And so that's three. And then your next circumference is going to be. Yeah. yeah, So that's four. And then age, maybe. So you're already four to five points just. Just by having a high BMI just, and being and just if it's showing a, up, and if it's a male, I mean, if right. it's a female, that's one point less. But then you're still looking at moderate to high risk. So yeah, I mean, anyone now, sensitivity wise, or specificity wise, not sensitive specificity wise, it's not. You know, backing great. up a little, the, you raise a good point though, as far as like this first high risk, like the HST. Like, are your patients getting a lot of home sleep tests and going straight to auto CPAP, or are they opting for a level one and then you know? Doing alternatives like you know, I found it depends a lot on what their individual you know, insurance situation is, right? Hmm. Some of the insurances, especially a lot of the HMOs, PPOs, seem to be really insistent that no, you have to have the home study first, mm-hmm. and then if that one, then we'll approve the lab one, right? If it's negative, you know, if it's negative, or they, if it's positive, they'll just be like, no, go get your CPAP. They don't they make have- a special exception for like this is hey, we're doing this for a pilot. I, you know, some of the specialists have been able to say, no, I need a titration, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. He has a positive home study, but I need the titration part. It's probably wise. Yeah. I I mean, I would. So they'll be like, I need the lab because of the titration, not for the diagnosis, but to titrate the therapy. So have you seen, will the FAA accept a negative home sleep test? Has that ever gotten through their goalposts? It has. Again, it depends a lot on what the overall risk factors are, right? If, you know, if the patient's on the lower end and in it all, a lot of times it comes down to what the clinician again is comfortable with, Mm -hmm. right? If, you know, you're the sleep specialist, you're certified in this area. If, if you feel that's a good quality home study and it represents it and the patient's history and stuff, and, and you're okay with that, you know, then the FA usually doesn't push back oh, a lot of hold okay. about that. But, you know, again, it, it depends. There's, it would have to be a patient so not, that you'd have a pre Basically, index basically they would always get an in-lab sleep yeah. study <laughs> because we, I think, for ASM guidelines, negative HSAT does not rule out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah they should we be. They should be, whether that's happening, you know, some. You know, does it also depends on healthcare what's available and right. where you're at too. Yeah. Not everybody has access to an in lab, so I won't yeah. throw anybody to the yeah. Bus and here. that's one of the reasons that the FA clearly would prefer. But like, if you look at the guideline on here, it, you know they're like, um, they make a specific comment about that, mm-hmm. right? That they say that if you're in an area in community, this is right out of their guideline in communities where a level two home test is unavailable. The FA will accept a level three uh, step test. I see. If the if the home study test is positive, no further testing is necessary, and treatment in accordance with ASI must be followed. However, if the test HST is equivocal, a higher level test, such as an in lab study, will be needed unless okay. a sleep medicine specialist determines that no study, no further study is necessary and documents the right. Okay, so it's, it's in there. There's okay. some flexibility. Yeah, there is. It, it yeah. seems pretty reasonable. I mean, I would hate to, you know, 
test somebody who has like no sleepiness as a negative age sat and then do it. But I mean, we, that's what we do because, yeah. you know, it doesn't. Well, and remembering too, that kind of like back in the back there, that fallback, you know, it, the MWT always sits back there as a way that we can, you know, here's how we can do a final test to find out if this is really an issue for yeah, you I mean, or not. If, if available, ideally you'd get a CPAP titration. Yeah. Yeah. You'd want to know the optimal pressures. Uh, Cause I do see a number of cases where patients are in the high teens on an auto CPAP and they're not the right pressures. Exactly. It seems to lose some sense. The, the machine seems to lose its abilities in in the teen, high teens ranges of finding the ideal pressures. Um, so I'd want to know in those cases. I think um, before we, I think we're kind of heading towards wrap up time here, but mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, um, are there any patients that you kind of, that the FAA requires, they just have to be tested. Like, um, even if they're not sleepy uh, yeah. or, you know, even if their BMI isn't above like 30 or, you know, 35. So especially recently here in the last couple of years, um, now, you know, you mentioned in the case we talked about earlier, right? The guy with the history of AFib, right? So mm-hmm. even if he's not overweight, any evidence of atrial fibrillation or, uh, you know, ventricular dysrhythmias, um, nocturnal dysrhythmias, like you get a halter on somebody and they have nocturnal dysrhythmias. Any of those are now requiring a full sleep study because of the correlations between, especially atrial fibrillation, right? So I've mm-hmm. got a guy I'm working with right now, uh, you know, pilot I've seen for years. So he comes in and, you know, airline pilots have to have an EKG once a year. So he comes in and he has his regular EKG and he's in atrial fibrillation. Well, he wasn't last year. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 45 years old. He's otherwise in pretty good shape. And now all of a sudden he's sitting here in atrial fibrillation. So we have to send him off the cardiologist. And one of the first things they did after the Holter was send him off for a sleep study. Right. And sure enough, it's wildly positive. He's got an AHI in the high thirties. So He's got to get that treated. Eventually they're going to ablate him. But I just talked to him yesterday and he's like, yeah, the insurance company won't even pay for my ablation until I've had 30 days of proven CPAP compliance. Well, that's new. That's actually, I would agree with that. Because because, because of the relapse rates. Yeah, so, that's, that yes, makes sense. You that's know, actually a good policy, in it, my opinion. When it comes to... Unless they get admitted. Right. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know when, it, when it comes to, uh, you know, significant dysrhythmias and stuff like that, yes, that's one spot where, you know, it doesn't matter. Your, your uh, BMI could be 24, but if you're in atrofib, having history of AFib, you're going to get a sleep evaluation. Wow, yeah. Is, do, does the FAA require, I mean, pa- patients in AFib, do they have to be reverted back to sinus rhythm or is, or is, um, anti, you know, anticoagulation therapy good enough? Um, so like, that's kind of just the discussion I was having with this, this current pilot mm-hmm. clearly from a clinical standpoint, you know, it would be best to try, and he's young, mm-hmm. relatively, it would be best to try and get him back into sinus rhythm and keep him there. You know, whether it's cardioversion or ablation or whatever these medication, medication whatever the cardiologists yeah. do, right, to get him to get him there. But if they can't, or if they just keep relapsing and keep going back, yeah, I have several pilots who are in chronic permanent AFib and as long as they maintain, you know, good rate control and they're, um, they're maintaining their anticoagulation, then the FA is fine with that. You know, we, we follow them really closely, but in, and they, for that, they, they also don't all have to be uncumanin, right? It depends. The different cardiologists do it. The DOACs are fine right? now. Are there stricter requirements based on if you're a commercial pilot, you know, for a passenger jet versus if you're just flying your breezy in your backyard over somebody's farm like you know so like a lot of things that i've said today it depends right so um there are certain things for which every class so first class is what you're that's the type of medical that your airline pilots have to have second class is required for commercial pilots who get paid to fly but 
don't necessarily fly big transport uh, scheduled airlines. And then third class um, are pilots, mostly private pilots, right? Not being paid to fly. So certain things like say that the CPAP protocol is the same irregardless of the class, right? Hmm. Um, but when you get into some of the cardiac issues, there are some differences, you know, generally speaking, if you're looking at like AFib, the expectation is going to be pretty much the same across all the classes. Um, they, the FA may require like for a first class pilot who maybe is more marginal on his or her CPAP um, efficacy on the AHI. If they're a first class pilot, if they're working for a major airline, the FAA might be much more inclined to go and and ask for an MWT, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Than if you're just the third class pilot who, you know, flies his little Piper Cub around the neighborhood. Okay. Right? So they, they they do take that into consideration, but most of these things are all, you know, pretty much um, the same across the way. And yep. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was eye-opening i think i didn't have i mean reassuring re, it's reassuring yeah i mean i think we are doing everything we're supposed to be doing but it's nice to know that like we're, we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. well it's also nice that the fa is like you know got this going you know not just oh you're using it four hours 70 percent of the time you know it's actually more strict than yeah that. I, I think that actually the the biggest reassurance to me is that they do employ the mwt if if needed to kind of corroborate things should should it be needed? Yeah, uh, yeah I think that's we rarely see that. Yeah, I mean, I've or... I've I've done one MWT ever, uh, and that was when I was a when I was a fellow. I haven't. We just don't do them. But if I mean, there, it's one of those things that they keep it in their back pocket. Um, if you know, if when they look at everything, if they're still not totally convinced, they can pull that out and say, "Okay, do this test, and you know, show us in an objective way." that you're not having, you know, sleepiness issues, but, you know, I, we talk about it being sleep apnea and a lot of what we focus on today has been the sleep and the, the, you know, the restfulness and daytime sleepiness and all that and snoring. Yes, those are all important, but I think, you know, if you look at what we were just talking about a minute or two ago about the correlations with AFib and arrhythmias, that's an even bigger thing that I think we're just kind of starting to scrape the surface of. And, you know, an MWT doesn't measure that, Mm -hmm. right? And and I've, as time has gone on here in the last couple of years, I've talked to more and more of my sleep apnea pilots about those long-term issues, right? And the the correlations between arrhythmias and heart failure and hypertension and kidney failure, you know, and and these other things that are independently associated with untreated or undertreated sleep apnea. And the younger the patients are, the more potential for lifelong problems. So, um, you know, I, I really try and encourage them. And, you know, I would tell, uh, you know, any of the pilots that are concerned about it, you know, worried about, you know, get it treated. And I think it does your, yourself better for your overall long-term health. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons to, it's not just daytime sleepiness. That's Mm -hmm. the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good message. Yeah. All right. Any, any last, last questions? I think, all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, and, uh, I just, uh, all I'd say is I, I don't know, I'll, I'll leave my contact information with you guys. And, you know, I would say whether they're, you know, pilots out there listening or clinicians or whatever, if you've got questions or whatever, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. And what's the name um, of your practice? Um, my practice is called medical exam specialists. We're here in Plymouth, Michigan. And, um, I have another office up in Waterford mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, so you know, I'm. That's why when you invited me for this, I was like, really, hey, this sounds great, right? I'm used to talking mostly to the pilot 
side, mm-hmm. right? Because the pilots always have all these questions. Um, but they don't necessarily have all the medical understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you talked to me about this, it was kind of the first time it registered that, well, there's a lot of clinicians out there that maybe need to understand a little bit more about the FA process. Right. And, you know, but I think we've also had to deal with difficult medical examiners mm-hmm. on our end yeah. that will make us send forms back over and over and over again. And then it's good to know that we have someone that knows what they're doing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, and I think that, I think that, you know, this new, this new form by the FA, if you're a sleep specialist out there and you get a pilot or somebody says they're a pilot, right. Your pilot may not know about this form. The AME may not be as familiar with the form, depending on how busy they are, or whatever, you know, ask about it. It'll save you a ton of work on right. your end. Think- and that way, you know, that you're, that you're providing the information the FA wants in a nice, efficient manner. We'll link. We'll link to absolutely. We'll link to the forms. Actually, yep. if we can yeah. get those from you, yeah, I can put the, give yeah. those to you. They're they're can... publicly available right on the yeah. FA's website. Sounds Perfect. good. So. You're right. not on Twitter, are you? That's the best way. No, to, I don't. Okay. Do All right. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't do Twitter, Facebook, those kinds. Of, I leave that to the my that's fine my kids. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and uh, have Until a good next day. Time. No problem. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks for having me.